Chapter 14, Section 4 of Capital, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume 1, by Karl Marx. Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part 4. Production of Relative Surplus Value. Chapter 14. Division of Labor and Manufacture. Section 4. Division of Labor in Manufacture and Division of Labor in Society. We first considered the origin of manufacture, then its simple elements, then the detail laborer and his implements, and finally the totality of the mechanism. We shall now lightly touch upon the relation between the division of labor and manufacture and the social division of labor, which forms the foundation of all production of commodities. If we keep labor alone in view, we may designate the separation of social production into its main divisions, or genera, namely, agriculture, industries, etc., as division of labor in general, and the splitting up of these families into species and subspecies, as division of labor in particular, and the division of labor within the workshop, as division of labor in singular, or in detail. Footnote. Quote, Division of labor proceeds from the separation of professions the most widely different to that division, where several laborers divide between them the preparation of one and the same product, as in manufacture. Unquote. Storch. Cœur d'économie politique, Paris, page 173. Quote. Nous rencontrons chez le peuple parvenu à un certain degré de civilisation trois genres de divisions d'industrie. La première, que nous nommerons générale, amène la distinction des producteurs et agriculteurs, manufacturiers et commerçants. Elle se rapporte à trois principales branches d'industrie nationale. La seconde, qu'on pourrait appeler spéciale, est la division de chaque genre d'industrie en espèces, la troisième division d'industrie, celle afin qu'on devrait qualifier de division des besoins, ont de travail proprement dit, et celle qui s'établit dans les arts et les métiers séparés, qui s'établit dans la plupart des manufactures et des ateliers. Unquote. Starbuck, pages 84 to 85. End footnote. Division of labor in a society and the corresponding tying down of individuals to a particular calling develops itself, just as it does the division of labor and manufacture, from opposite starting points. Within a family, and after further development within a tribe, there springs up naturally a division of labor caused by differences of sex and age, a division that is consequently based on a purely physiological foundation which division enlarges its materials by the expansion of the community, by the increase of population, and, more especially, 
by the conflicts between different tribes and the subjugation of one tribe by another. Footnote Note to the third edition Subsequent very searching study of the primitive condition of man led the author to the conclusion that it was not the family that originally developed into the tribe, but that, on the contrary, the tribe was the primitive and spontaneously developed form of human association, on the basis of blood relationship, and that, out of the first incipient loosening of the tribal bonds, the many and various forms of the family were afterwards developed. Friedrich Engels End footnote on the other hand, as I have before remarked, the exchange of products springs up at the points where different families, tribes, communities come in contact, for, in the beginning of civilization, it is not private individuals but families, tribes, etc., that meet on an independent footing. Different communities find different means of production, and different means of subsistence in their natural environment. Hence, their modes of production and of living, and their products, are different. It is this spontaneously developed difference which, when different communities come in contact, calls forth the mutual exchange of products, and the consequent gradual conversion of those products into commodities. Exchange does not create the differences between the spheres of production, but brings what are already different into relation, and thus converts them into more or less interdependent branches of the collective production of an enlarged society. In the latter case, the social division of labor arises from the exchange between spheres of production that are originally distinct and independent of one another. In the former, where the physiological division of labor is the starting point, the particular organs of a compact whole grow loose and break off principally owing to the exchange of commodities with foreign communities, and then isolate themselves so far that the sole bond still connecting the various kinds of work is the exchange of the products as commodities. In the one case, it is the making dependent what was before independent. In the other case, the making independent what was before dependent. The foundation of every division of labor that is well developed and brought about by the exchange of commodities is the separation between town and country. Footnote. Sir James Stewart is the economist who has handled this subject best. How little his book, which appeared ten years before The Wealth of Nations, is known, even at the present time, may be judged from the fact that the admirers of Malthus do not even know that the first edition of the latter's work on population contains, except in the purely declamatory part, very little but extracts from Stuart, and, in a less degree, from Wallace and Townsend. End footnote. It may be said that the whole economic history of society is summed up in the movement of this antithesis. We pass it over, however, for the present. Just as a certain number of simultaneously employed laborers are the material prerequisites for the division of labor and manufacture, so are the number and density of the population, which here correspond to the agglomeration in one workshop, a necessary condition for the division of labor in society. 
Footnote. Quote, there is a certain density of population which is convenient, both for social intercourse and for that combination of powers by which the produce of labor is increased. Unquote. James Mill, page 50. Quote, As the number of laborers increases, the productive power of society augments in the compound ratio of that increase, multiplied by the effects of the division of labor. Unquote. Thomas Hogskin, pages 125-126. End footnote. Nevertheless, this density is more or less relative. A relatively thinly populated country, with well-developed means of communication, has a denser population than a more numerously populated country with badly developed means of communication. And in this sense, the northern states of the American Union, for instance, are more thickly populated than India. Footnote. In consequence of the great demand for cotton after 1861, the production of cotton in some thickly populated districts of India was extended at the expense of rice cultivation. In consequence, there arose local famines, the defective means of communication not permitting the failure of rice in one district to be compensated by importation from another. End footnote. Since the production and circulation of commodities are the general prerequisites of the capitalist mode of production, division of labor and manufacture demands that division of labor and society at large should previously have attained a certain degree of development. Inversely, the former division reacts upon and develops and multiplies the latter. Simultaneously, with the differentiation of the instruments of labor, the industries that produce these instruments become more and more differentiated. Footnote. Thus, the fabrication of shuttles formed as early as the 17th century, a special branch of industry in Holland. End footnote. If the manufacturing system sees upon an industry which previously was carried on in connection with others, either as a chief or as a subordinate industry, and by one producer, these industries immediately separate their connection and become independent. If it sees upon a particular stage in the production of a commodity, the other stages of its production become converted into so many independent industries. It has already been stated that where the finished article consists merely of a number of parts fitted together, the detail operations may re-establish themselves as genuine and separate handicrafts. In order to carry out more perfectly the division of labor and manufacture, a single branch of production is, according to the varieties of its raw material, or the various forms that one and the same raw material may assume, split up into numerous and, to some extent, entirely new manufactures. Accordingly, in France alone, in the first half of the 18th century, over 100 different kinds of silk stuffs were woven. And in Avignon, it was law that, quote, every apprentice should devote himself to only one sort of fabrication, and should not learn the preparation of several kinds of stuff at once, unquote. 
the territorial division of labor which confines special branches of production to special districts of a country acquires fresh stimulus from the manufacturing system which exploits every special advantage footnote Quote, whether the woolen manufacture of england is not divided into several parts or branches appropriated to particular places where they are only or principally manufactured fine cloths in somersetshire coarse in yorkshire long ells at exeter soys at sudsbury crepes at norwich lindsay's at kendall blankets at whitney and so forth Unquote. Barclay, the querist seventeen fifty one subsection five twenty end footnote the colonial system and the opening out of the markets of the world both of which are included in the general conditions of existence of the manufacturing period furnish rich material for developing the division of labor in society it is not the place here to go on to show how division of labor seizes upon not only the economic but every other sphere of society and everywhere lays the foundation of that all-engrossing system of specializing and sorting men that development in a man of one single faculty at the expense of all other faculties which caused a ferguson the master of adam smith to exclaim quote, we make a nation of helots and have no free citizens. Unquote. Footnote. A. Ferguson, History of Civil Society, Edinburgh, 1767, Part 4, Section 2, page 285. End footnote. But in spite of the numerous analogies and links connecting them, division of labor in the interior of a society and that in the interior of a workshop differ not only in degree but also in kind the analogy appears most indisputable where there is an invisible bond uniting the various branches of trade for instance the cattle breeder produces hides the tanner makes the hides into leather and the shoemaker the leather into boots here the thing produced by each of them is but a step towards the final form which is the product of all their labors combined. There are, besides, all the various industries that supply the cattle breeder, the tanner, and the shoemaker with the means of production. Now it is quite possible to imagine, with Adam Smith, that the difference between the above social division of labor and the division in manufacture is merely subjective, exists merely for the observer, who, in a manufacture, can see with one glance all the numerous operations being performed on one spot, while, in the instance given above, the spreading out of the work over great areas and the great number of people employed in each branch of labor obscure the connection. Footnote. In manufacture proper, he says, the division of labor appears to be greater because, quote, those employed in every different branch of the work can often be collected into the same workhouse and placed at once under the view of the spectator in those great manufactures on the contrary which are destined to supply the great wants of the great body of the people every different branch of their work employs so great a number of workmen that it is impossible to collect them all into the same workhouse 
the division is not near so obvious. Unquote. Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, Book One, Chapter One. The celebrated passage in the same chapter that begins with the words, quote, Observe the accommodation of the most common artificer or day laborer in a civilized and thriving society, unquote, etc., and then proceeds to depict what an enormous number and variety of industries contribute to the satisfaction of the wants of an ordinary laborer, is copied almost word for word from de Mandeville's remarks in his Fable of the Bees, or Private Vices, Public Benefits. End footnote. But what is it that forms the bond between the independent labors of the cattle breeder, the tanner, and the shoemaker? It is the fact that their respective products are commodities. What, on the other hand, characterizes division of labor in manufactures? The fact that the detail laborer produces no commodities. Footnote. Quote, there is no longer anything which we can call the natural reward of individual labor. Each laborer produces only some part of a whole, and each part, having no value or utility in itself, there is nothing on which the laborer can seize and say, It is my product, this I will keep to myself. Unquote. Labor Defended Against the Claims of Capital, London, 1825, page 25. The author of this admirable work is the Thomas Hodgkin I have already cited. End footnote. It is only the common product of all the detail laborers that becomes a commodity. Footnote. This distinction between division of labor in society and in manufacture was practically illustrated to the Yankees. One of the new taxes devised at Washington during the Civil War was the duty of 6% quote, on all industrial products, unquote. Question. What is an industrial product? Answered the legislature. A thing produced, quote, when it is made, unquote, and it is made when it is ready for sale. Now, for one example out of many. The New York and Philadelphia manufacturers had previously been in the habit of, quote, making, unquote, umbrellas with all their belongings. But since an umbrella is a mixtum compositum of very heterogeneous parts, by degrees, these parts became the products of various separate industries carried on independently in different places. They entered as separate commodities into the umbrella manufactory, where they were fitted together. The Yankees have given to articles thus fitted together the name of, quote, assembled articles, unquote, a name they deserve for being an assemblage of taxes. Thus the umbrella, quote, assembles, unquote, first, 6% on the price of each of its elements, and a further 6% on its own total price. End footnote. Division of labor in society is brought about by the purchase and sale of the products of different branches of industry, while the connection between the detail operations in a workshop is due to the sale of the labor power of several workmen to one capitalist, who applies it as combined labor power. 
The division of labor in the workshop implies concentration of the means of production in the hands of one capitalist. The division of labor in society implies their dispersion among many independent producers of commodities. While within the workshop, the iron law of proportionality subjects definite numbers of workmen to definite functions. In the society outside the workshop, chance and caprice have full play in distributing the producers and their means of production among the various branches of industry. The different spheres of production, it is true, constantly tend to an equilibrium, for, on the one hand, while each producer of a commodity is bound to produce a use value to satisfy a particular social want, and while the extent of these wants differs quantitatively, there still exists an inner relation which settles their proportions into a regular system. And that system, one of spontaneous growth, and, on the other hand, the law of the value of commodities ultimately determines how much of its disposable working time society can expend on each particular class of commodities. But this constant tendency to equilibrium of the various spheres of production is exercised only in the shape of a reaction against the constant upsetting of this equilibrium. The a priori system on which the division of labor within the workshop is regularly carried out becomes, in the division of labor within the society, an a posteriori nature-imposed necessity, controlling the lawless caprice of the producers and perceptible in the barometrical fluctuations of the market prices. Division of labor within the workshop implies the undisputed authority of the capitalist over men, that are but parts of a mechanism that belongs to him. The division of labor within the society brings into contact independent commodity producers, who acknowledge no other authority but that of competition, of the coercion exerted by the pressure of their mutual interests. Just as in the animal kingdom, the bellum omnium contra omnis more or less preserves the conditions of existence of every species. The same bourgeois mind, which praises division of labor in the workshop, lifelong annexation of the laborer to a partial operation, and his complete subjugation to capital, as being an organization of labor that increases its productiveness, that same bourgeois mind denounces with equal vigor every conscious attempt to socially control and regulate the process of production as an inroad upon such sacred things as the rights of property, freedom, and unrestricted play for the bent of the individual capitalist. It is very characteristic that the enthusiastic apologists of the factory system have nothing more damning to urge against a general organization of the labor of society than that it would turn all society into one immense factory. If, in a society with capitalist production, Anarchy in the social division of labor and despotism in that of the workshop are mutual conditions, the one of the other. We find, on the contrary, in those earlier forms of society in which the separation of trades has been spontaneously developed, then crystallized, and finally made permanent by law, on the one hand, a specimen of the organization of labor in society, in accordance with an approved and authoritative plan, and, on the other, 
the entire exclusion of division of labor in the workshop, or at all events, a mere dwarf-like or sporadic and accidental development of the same. Footnote. Quote, On peut établir en règle générale que moi l'autorité préside à la division du travail dans l'intérieur de la société, plus la division du travail se développe dans l'intérieur de l'atelier et plus elle y est soumise à l'autorité d'un seul. Ainsi, l'autorité dans l'atelier et celle dans la société par rapport à la division du travail sont et raison inverse l'une de l'autre. Karl Marx, Misere, etc., pages 130-131. End footnote. Those small and extremely ancient Indian communities, some of which have continued down to this day, are based on possession in common of the land, on the blending of agriculture and handicrafts, and on an unalterable division of labor, which serves, whenever a new community is started, as a plan and scheme ready cut and dried. Occupying areas from one hundred up to several thousand acres, each forms a compact whole producing all it requires. The chief part of the products is destined for direct use by the community itself, and does not take the form of a commodity. Hence, production here is independent of that division of labor brought about, in Indian society as a whole, by means of the exchange of commodities. It is the surplus alone that becomes a commodity, and a portion of even that, not until it has reached the hands of the state, into whose hands, from time immemorial, a certain quantity of these products has found its way in the shape of rent in kind. The constitution of these communities varies in different parts of India. In those of the simplest form, the land is tilled in common, and the produce divided among the members. At the same time, spinning and weaving are carried on in each family as subsidiary industries. Side by side with the masses thus occupied with one and the same work, we find the chief inhabitant, who is judge, police, and tax-gatherer in one, the bookkeeper, who keeps the accounts of the tillage and registers everything relating thereto, another official who prosecutes criminals, protects strangers traveling through, and escorts them to the next village, the boundary man, who guards the boundaries against neighboring communities, the water overseer, who distributes the water from the common tanks for irrigation, the Brahmin, who conducts the religious services, the schoolmaster, who on the sand teaches the children reading and writing, the calendar Brahmin, or astrologer, who makes known the lucky or unlucky days for seed time and harvest, and for every other kind of agricultural work, a smith and a carpenter, who make and repair all the agricultural implements, the potter, who makes all the pottery of the village, the barber, the washerman, who washes clothes, the silversmith, here and there, the poet, who in some communities replaces the silversmith, in others, the schoolmaster. This dozen of individuals is maintained at the expense of the whole community. 
if the population increases, a new community is founded on the pattern of the old one, on unoccupied land. The whole mechanism discloses a systematic division of labor, but a division like that in manufactures is impossible, since the smith and the carpenter, etc., find an unchanging market, and, at the most, there occur, according to the sizes of the villages, two or three of each, instead of one. Footnote. Lieutenant Colonel Mark Wilkes. Historical Sketches of the South of India, London, 1810-17, Volume 1, pages 118-20. to A good description of the various forms of the Indian communities is to be found in George Campbell's Modern India, London, 1852. End footnote. The law that regulates the division of labor in the community acts with the irresistible authority of a law of nature, at the same time that each individual artificer, the smith, the carpenter, and so on, conducts in his workshop all the operations of his handicraft in the traditional way, but independently, and without recognizing any authority over him. The simplicity of the organization for production in these self-sufficing communities that constantly reproduce themselves in the same form, and when accidentally destroyed, spring up again on the spot and with the same name, this simplicity supplies the key to the secret of the unchangeableness of Asiatic societies, and unchangeableness in such striking contrast with the constant dissolution and refounding of Asiatic states and the never-ceasing changes of dynasty. Footnote. Quote, Under this simple form, the inhabitants of the country have lived from time immemorial. The boundaries of the villages have been but seldom altered, and though the villages themselves have been sometimes injured and even desolated by war, famine, and disease, the same name, the same limits, the same interests, and even the same families have continued for ages. The inhabitants give themselves no trouble about breaking up and division of kingdoms. While the village remains entire, they care not to what power it is transferred, or to what sovereign it devolves. Its internal economy remains unchanged. Unquote. Thomas Stamford Raffles, late Lieutenant Governor of Java. The History of Java, London, 1817, Volume 1, page 285. End footnote. The structure of the economic elements of society remains untouched by the storm clouds of the political sky. The rules of the guilds, as I have said before, by limiting most strictly the number of apprentices and journeymen that a single master could employ, prevented him from becoming a capitalist. Moreover, he could not employ his journeymen in many other handicrafts than the one in which he was a master. The guilds zealously repelled every encroachment by the capital of merchants, the only form of free capital with which they came in contact. A merchant could buy every kind of commodity, but labor as a commodity he could not buy. He existed only on sufferance as a dealer in the products of the handicrafts. If circumstances called for a further division of labor, the existing guilds split themselves up into varieties, or founded new guilds by the side of the old ones. 
all this, however, without concentrating various handicrafts in a single workshop. Hence the guild organization, however much it may have contributed by separating, isolating, and perfecting the handicrafts to create the material conditions for the existence of manufacture, excluded division of labor in the workshop. On the whole, the laborer and his means of production remained closely united, like the snail with its shell, and thus there was wanting the principal basis of manufacture, the separation of the laborer from his means of production, and the conversion of these means into capital. While division of labor in society at large, whether such division be brought about or not by exchange of commodities, is common to economic formations of society the most diverse, division of labor in the workshop, as practiced by manufacture, is a special creation of the capitalist mode of production alone. End of Part 4 Chapter 14 Section 4